Today on the Matt Walsh Show, a few months ago, the entire corporate media condemned a woman as a bigot and a transphobe when she complained about a man exposing himself inside the women's locker room at Wee Spa in Los Angeles. But in recent weeks, the media has stopped talking about this case completely. And that's because of the recent revelations about this man and what he was really doing inside that locker room. They don't want us to talk about the story anymore because of that, but we will today. Also, the mayor of San Francisco defends herself against charges of hypocrisy after being seen partying maskless at a nightclub. And daycare workers are caught on tape trying to force a mask onto a very, very young child. And the former head of the FDA says that the whole uh, six feet of social distancing rule was arbitrary and nobody knows where it came from. And also the Biden administration now wants permanent access to all of your banking information and your transaction history. Who could possibly object to that? We'll talk about that today and much more on The Matt Walsh Show. Let's begin today with a trip down memory lane. I want to take you back to ancient history, to a time that our forefathers told us about, all the way back to June 24th, 2021. In those days of yore, something happened which the media certainly hopes to leave buried under the sand, out of sight and out of mind and out of memory. It was the incident at the Wee Spa in Los Angeles. As you may still recall, if you're as old as me, and you can think back to all the way back to three months ago. The Wee Spa was the site of controversy when a woman who goes by Cubana Angel on Instagram uploaded a video of herself confronting the spa staff over a naked man who exposed himself inside the women's locker room. She said that she was in the locker room along with a bunch of other women and young girls when the man entered and uh, revealed himself in all of his maleness to the females in the room. To refresh our memories, let's watch a little bit of the conversation between Cubana Angel and the staff. Towards the end of this clip, you'll also, you'll also get to see the uh, mustachioed white knight gallop into the scene to stick up for the naked exhibitionist man in the locker room and condemn the woman for her, big, her, her uh, bigotry and her transphobia. Let's watch that again. So you don't, so it's okay, I just want to be clear with you. It's okay, it's okay for a man to go into the women's section, show his penis around the other women, young little girls under age. Your spa, we spa, condone that. Is that what you're saying? Like I asked. It's so he, so he can stay there. He could stay there? What sexual orientation? I see a d it lets me know he's a man. He, he's a man. He is a man. He is not no female. He is not a female. He is not a female. Give her her money back. Are you talking about a transgender person? There's no such thing as transgender. He has a Okay? He has a penis. He has penis is hanging out. Okay, no, I'm not one. Actually, I'm a woman who knows how to stand up and speak up for my right. As a woman, I have a right to feel comfortable yes. without a man yes. exposing himself, okay? No, you go somewhere else. Okay, so that's right. No, he's not a transgender. He has a penis, just like you do. Are you, are you, are you, are you? No. Yeah. Okay, it's not okay. It's not okay. Okay, that's traumatizing to see that. I'm a woman. I think this is a place right here. I'm told only for women. So how dare you sit up here and tell me I don't have a right as a woman to defend. I'm telling you, he has a penis, a full, and testicles, okay? And my favorite thing about that video has always been when you hear the white knight in the background and you don't see him yet, and he says, are you talking about the transgender person? 
And, uh, and then the camera pans over. And, and before you see him, you have an image in your head of what this guy is going to look like. And he looks exactly like him. It's like a premonition, you know, exactly what he's going to look like. And he looks like that. And, uh, and then you get the smarmy look on his face the entire time while this woman is trying to explain basic biology. No, no, no. He's, he's has a penis and testicles. That's a, that's a man. That's a man. And the white knight's standing there like, oh, okay, all right. This condescending look as if, as if he's the one talking to a crazy person. When it's the other way around. So the staff was against her. The white knight was against her. A man had stripped off his clothes in front of her without her consent. And most of the people in the building were taking the man's side. And this pattern would hold true on a larger scale. The left-wing social media mob, the entire mainstream media, along with the Antifa terrorists who showed up at the Wee Spa in the following days to assault and intimidate the small group of protesters who came to support Cubana Angel and the other female victims in the case. All of these groups condemned the women as bigots and transphobes even as hoaxers and scam artists. Here's a quick sample of some of the headlines related to this incident. From Slate, violence over an alleged transphobic hoax shows the danger of underestimating anti-trans hate. The Independent, LGBTQ advocates suggest alleged trans exposure incident at the LA spa was faked. Pink News says, bigot screaming at spa staff for not being transphobic sparks furious protests. The Guardian, a nightmare scenario, how an anti-trans Instagram post led to violence in the streets. And the New Republic, how Tucker Carlson and a story about a possibly fictional trans person fueled two weeks of violent right-wing protests. There was an article in The Advocate titled, Was Trans Nudity Incident at Los Angeles Spa Staged? And this article actually suggests that the whole thing may have been a right-wing false flag operation. This was published on July 9th. The piece reads, A trans activist and journalist writing under the pseudonym Robert Lansing says the whole thing may have been an elaborate hoax. Quote, a source at the spa told The Blade, there's no record of, of any of its usual transgender clients on its appointment guest list on the day in question. Lansing wrote in an article published on Wednesday, treatment at the spa is by appointment only, and most of its transgender clients are well known to the staff. Also anonymous sources with the Los Angeles Police Department told Lansing, there's no corroborating evidence that a trans person was at Wee Spa that day. No obviously trans person can be seen in the video, and no other clients have offered evidence either. A woman falsely accused of being the trans woman who so offended Cubana Angel has been harassed and received death threats. Quote, it also remains a possibility that there was a person unknown to the Wee Spa staff who pretended to be transgender to create an inciting incident, Lansing continued. In 2015, anti-transgender activists in Washington state deliberately encouraged men to enter women's, women's facilities. One cisgender man entered a swimming pool changing area wearing only board shorts while claiming that he had a right to be there. He was removed from the premises without charges being filed. Ah, yes. So it didn't happen. But if it did happen, it was a right-wing conspiracy. That's what they decided to go with. They also claimed that there's no evidence that this trans person exists even though multiple women can be heard in the video reporting that they just saw the guy's penis in the women's locker room five seconds earlier. Apparently, multiple women testifying to their experiences does not count as evidence. That's no evidence. At least it doesn't count as evidence when the person being accused is trans. If the person accused was a straight, white, conservative male, a quote-unquote cisgender male, as they say, all it would take is one woman testifying to something that allegedly occurred at any point within the last half century. 
And that would qualify not just as evidence, but as indisputable proof. That's the way these things work, as we have seen. Now, the headlines just cited are some of the more egregious examples, but every headline about this case in the left-wing press was along these lines. They all agreed that the women who complained about the transgender person were hateful transphobes, that the whole thing was probably some sort of hoax. That was the media's spin until the last few weeks, when they suddenly stopped talking about the story altogether. And if you're wondering why they all fell so eerily silent, why the left stopped condemning the horrific transphobia of Cubana Angel and her conspirators, it's because the full truth has come out. And the truth is, well, the truth is exactly what you should expect. The quote-unquote trans woman who entered the locker room that day is a sex offender with a long history of allegations and convictions. His name is Darren Maraja. He's 52 years old. He's now wanted by police on six felony charges of indecent exposure after five females at the Wee Spa that day, five of them, including one minor, reported to police that he exposed his erect penis to them in the locker room. He now has two warrants for his arrest stemming from this incident and has not turned himself into, into the police. The New York Post has more information about this sex predator who every left-wing media outlet in the country defended. It says, quote, Sources tell the Post that Mirager had been banned by Wee Spa back in 2019 due to customer complaints of an erection in the women's section. But Mirager wasn't recognized by the front desk in June because they were wearing a mask. Wee Spa did not respond for comment. Uh, Mirager says, he was interviewed by the Post, and he says, I don't remember being banned, adding that there was one complaint, but maintains it was meritless and based on transphobia. Mirager, who stands six foot two and weighs around 200 pounds, says the women are mistaking a large appendage for an erection. Mirager says, I don't have a small penis, but you can't say that's an erection. What if you use the men's room and someone said they don't like the size or shape of your penis? That's what they're doing. But this isn't Mirager's first incident of indecent exposure. Mirager was convicted in 2003 for looking through the window of an elderly woman's home in California while masturbating. Um, he says, quote, I may have been somewhere I didn't belong, but I wasn't doing it for sexual gratification and I wasn't showing myself off, Mirager contests. Mirager says it was a mistake to plead guilty. When asked if he, if, if he was there and masturbated on the property, Mirager said, I don't remember that night, so I can't comment. It was a long time ago. Oh, yes, he doesn't remember. Doesn't remember if he masturbated in front of an elderly woman's window or not. Oh, maybe I did. Maybe I, I can't remember. It's so long ago. Now, it may sound difficult to believe that a person wouldn't remember whether or not they did that. But considering how often this guy allegedly exposes himself to women, there may be some truth to it. He's just having trouble keeping it all straight. More from the Post. It says, Mirager has also been implicated in sex crime investigations that did not result in charges. In June 2018, while on parole for a burglary conviction, Mirager was identified as a suspect in an alleged indecent exposure incident at a gasoline station. According to a police report, three customers reported to the cashier that a person with no underwear wearing a see-through fishnet-style outfit was exposing themselves at a pump. Then on December 26, 2018, Police responded to the Palm Springs Swim Center after the coaches of a high school girls' water polo team called police. According to the incident report, one of the coaches said he aggressively confronted Mirager after the schoolgirls alerted him that Mirager had exposed his penis in the women's changing room. Um, and by the way, I, as I'm, I was reading that from the New York Post, I kept using uh, his and him, but the New York Post was using their because, you know, it's important when we're talking about a 
sex offender who is exposing himself to, to young girls, it's, it's important to respect his pronouns still. So to review, a 52-year-old male sex predator with a long history of harassing women, including the elderly and children, entered a female locker room, exposed his erect penis to a group of women and a child. The victims then complained to the staff who all took the sex offender's side. And the media took the sex offender's side. The left took the sex offender's side. What's more, they said that if a male sex pest shows his erection to you in the locker room, it is your responsibility as a woman to accept him as a woman. A woman with an erection, to be specific. This is the actual position of the corporate press and the entire American left wing. If a sex offender is harassing or assaulting you, you have to put up with it if he says he's trans. Take it one step further. A male sex offender has the right to harass you and expose himself to you if he says he's trans. Being transgender grants him the right to commit sex offenses. That is the official position of the media and the left and all these people. For the left, especially those in the media, what we what we know and what we learn from this is that their fidelity to their religion and to the LGBT agenda comes before everything else. Before the facts, before truth, before the privacy and safety of women and girls, before basic human decency, before morality, before everything. Now, we know that. And we're accustomed to it by now. We're kind of numb to it. But that shouldn't prevent us from realizing and appreciating just how outrageous and repugnant all of this really is. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, you've all heard me talk plenty about MyPillow, which, uh, you know, it's a uniquely comfortable product that you just have to try to really experience. And and once you have tried MyPillow, you're not going to want to ever use another pillow again, I can tell you that. Well, MyPillow has done it again by introducing their new My Slippers. My My Pillow has taken over two years to develop their My Slippers, designed to wear indoors and outdoors all day long, made with My Pillow foam and impact gel to help prevent fatigue. And they're also made with quality leather suede. And it's yet again, same situation. Once you try these slippers, and I'm a big slipper fan myself, um, as any middle-aged dad should be, I believe, uh, once you try these slippers, you're not going to want to try any others ever again. For a limited time, MyPillow is offering 50% off his new My Slippers. The My Slippers are so comfortable that you'll want to get some for the whole family. Go to MyPillow.com and click on the radio listener square and use promo code DAILYWIRE at checkout or call 800-651-1148. You'll also get deep discounts on all MyPillow products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets, the MyPillow mattress topper, and the MyPillow towel sets. That's MyPillow.com and enter DAILYWIRE or call 1-800-651-1148 and tell them, I sent you. That's 1-800-651-1148. By the way, I know I'm uh, like like maybe a year behind the times, but I, I wanted to mention I, I finally saw the movie Tenet uh, with Christopher Nolan over the weekend. You have to understand, uh, it, it's a, it's a high-pressure situation for me when I'm sitting down with my wife to watch a movie because to convince her to watch a movie is already, you know, there's there's a lot of convincing that goes into it because she's she's one of those these people, very common these days, doesn't want to watch, watch a movie I uh, would rather watch, you know, I'll sit down and watch a TV show for 30 minutes, but not a movie. And I can kind of understand it because it's a, it's a big time investment. But And so many movies are terrible. But the, the problem is that if if I convince her to watch the movie, now, 
Now it's as if it's my, it's, it's, as, it's as if the movie is mine. Like I made it. I'm responsible now if it's not good. So I feel a lot of pressure. And uh, so I said, let's sit down and watch this movie. You know, Christopher Nolan, how bad can it be? And I got to say, if you haven't seen this film, it is terrible. I mean, it is awful. And I know, I know you're thinking, well, Matt, you hate everything. That's not true, first of all. I don't hate, there are some things I like. I like fishing. I like the color blue. I like books about Arctic explorers. I, I like two or three other things. So there are things that I like, but this is just really bad. Christopher Nolan has, has always had this idea with his movies that for, for some reason, you know, you shouldn't be allowed to understand the dialogue in the film. He thinks that the dialogue should be a, a mystery. So all his characters are always speaking in these muffled voices. It sounds like they have blankets over their heads or like listening to the movie. It's like listening to someone. It's like trying to have a conversation with someone two rows up from you on a plane during takeoff. And, um, and I guess in this movie, what he said is, well, I already make the dialogue unintelligible. So let's make a movie where the entire plot and the character's motivations and everything about it is completely incoherent and nothing that is happening in this movie makes any sense whatsoever. It's one of those movies I think that is, it's, it impresses a very specific IQ demographic. So if you're sitting at like a 95, a 90 to 95, not incredibly stupid, but also not smart. Then you'll watch this movie and you'll think that it, that it, it well, it must be a smart movie. And so it must make sense. And so you're going to be kind of like a person looking at the clouds, trying to dis- discern shapes in the clouds. But if you're a little bit smarter, you watch it and you go, oh no, this is all just total nonsense. So really bad, but still better than any Marvel movie. I'll give it that. All right, so there was uh, supposed to allegedly be a right-wing rally in D.C. uh, to commemorate January 6th or something or another on Saturday. You know, the thing is that uh, nobody had heard about this rally. Uh, I'm a right-winger, and um, I have my ear to the pavement. I kind of hear about these, you know, if there's going to be a big conservative right-wing protest somewhere, you'd think I'd be the kind of person that might hear about it. Um, You'd think you would hear about it, but, but no one had heard about it. Nobody knew it was supposed to happen. Only the media knew about it. So the media showed up on Saturday in D.C. And the police showed up. And lots of feds showed up, we can assume. And really nobody else. Here's the uh, Reuters report about this uh, so-called protest. Let's watch. Police vastly outnumbered protesters around the U.S. Capitol on Saturday at a sparsely attended rally by supporters of people who breached the building on January 6th, trying to overturn former President Donald Trump's election defeat. About one to 200 protesters showed up for the Justice for J6 rally, far fewer than the 700 organizers had expected and the thousands who brought mayhem to the Capitol on January 6th. As part of an effort by some of Trump's far-right supporters to rewrite the history of January's deadly mob assault, speaker after speaker on Saturday insisted that hundreds of rioters arrested that day were, quote, political prisoners. Okay, a couple of things here. Um, and you see a few. So there were a few. There were like, you know, 10 or 12 maybe actual protesters. There were, there were, about, there were about 15 reporters for every actual protester. But even of the 10 or 12, we can assume that at least half of them were in the FBI. So how many real protesters? Who knows? As far as them as the uh, the capital rioters in prison right now being political prisoners, they are political prisoners. 
in the sense that the severity of the charges, you know, the extent to which they've been hunted down, the way they're being dealt with, all of this is politically motivated. So that's what we mean when we say political prisoners in this case. And we know that it's politically motivated. Um, We 100% know that based on the comparison to the BLM riots. We have this really handy comparison that we can draw of violent rioting, in many cases much more violent than, than what we saw on January 6th all across the country. And we can see how those rioters have been dealt with and how that's been handled. And we can compare it and we can, we can see, okay, well, the ones at the Capitol are being dealt with in a, in a, in a much, much harsher way than BLM. And we can't say that, oh, it's because they attacked a government building. As we've reviewed many times, BLM did the same thing. They, they had a, uh, BLM and Antifa, they had a federal courthouse under siege for weeks. They invaded a police station, burned it down. That's a government building. You would think that's a pretty significant crime, you would think. In spite of that, we know that most of the, the effort... Um, has been to track down January 6th and not the BLM riders. And why is that? Well, because it's, it's politics. So political prisoners, yes, in that sense. Um, also, in, in terms of anticipating a big turnout, nobody did. No one anticipated that but the media. And it wasn't so much them anticipating a big turnout. It's that they, they were hoping for one. They're begging for another January 6th, but much worse. You know, we know that after January 6th, they said it was a deadly riot and they were trying to imply that the rioters, uh, you know, killed several people. And in fact, the rioters didn't kill anybody. But what they want, you know, they want a real riot that's actually as bad and violent as they've made this one out to be. That's what they are begging for. And um, they couldn't get it in this case, so... My condolence. My condolences to the media. You didn't get. Uh, I know what you were looking for. You were hoping some people would die, and it would be a big mess, and it'd give you something to talk about. It would give you something you could hang around the necks of your political enemies. And uh, my condolences that you didn't get that. Really, really tough. Really tough break. I'm sorry, guys. Maybe next time. All right, next from the Daily Wire, it says uh, San Francisco Mayor London Breed, a Democrat, was photographed at a jazz club earlier this week indoors and without a mask, despite a citywide mandate. Let's play the video of her here as I read this report from the Daily Wire. You can see her there. She's, there's not a mask in sight. And they are indoors and they're packed in tight. And there's someone singing there, exhaling vigorously. Spraying his uh, aerosol particles all over this crowd of maskless people. This is a really dangerous thing going on. Um, and this was last week. Uh, when asked on Friday about her defiance of the mask mandate, Breed responded with excuses that wouldn't fly for anyone else, including a denunciation of the fun police. We have her excuses. Um, yeah, the next day she was uh, talking to the media. And in fact, her ent- she, she goes on for like five or six minutes defending herself. And I'm not going to play the entire thing, but here's a minute and a half of her offering excuses for defying her own mask mandate 
And uh, you just have to listen to this. Let's listen. I had a good time at the Black Cat. And I think it's sad that um, this is even a story. Um, the fact is, um, there was something that was really um, monumental that occurred. And that is Tony, 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 the original members, the brothers, Raphael Sadiq and Dwayne Wiggins, who have not performed in public for, I believe, at least over 20 years. They are just really um, some of the most incredible artists in the history of this country and the Bay Area in particular. And the fact that that is getting lost here is very unfortunate, not to mention the incredible trumpeteer, Maurice Mobetta Brown, who is just phenomenal. These incredible musicians who performed and who really uplifted the spirits of not just myself, but all of the people who were there. And from my perspective, you know, I was there, I was eating, and I was drinking, and I was sitting with my friends, and everyone who came in there was vaccinated. So the fact that we have turned this into a story about being maskless, no, I'm not gonna sip and put my mask on, sip and put my mask on, sip and put my mask on, eat and put my mask on. While I'm eating and I'm drinking, I'm gonna keep my mask off. Okay, well, she was having a good time, and besides, Dwayne Wiggins was there. Come on, Dwayne Wiggins was there, and, and there was and there were incredible trumpeteers. I mean, look, is that not enough for you people? Yes, we're saying that it's a deadly pandemic, and you know, if you walk outside without a mask on, you might die. And yeah, your kids have to go to school every day in a mask, right? But uh, but Dwayne Wiggins was at the club. And she was having a good time. She, she, later on, she talks about, uh, I don't know if she said it there or not, because I was, I was only barely paying attention. But she's, she accuses the, the people who are telling her that she should obey her own rules. She's calling them the fun police. And she says that she was getting in the spirit, you know. She was just vibing to the jazz music. Man, chill out, all right? And what is she going to do? Take... You know, take, pull the mask down, take a sip of the drink, pull the mask back up, pull it down, take a sip. Who would do that? That's crazy. I mean, that's insane. It's crazy to expect anyone to do that. I mean, that's exactly what they tell you to do on planes, though. It's, they tell you that explicitly. They say, pull your mask down, take a sip and pull it back up. Those are the, that's verbatim instructions from flight attendants on planes. Now, she's not on a plane, granted, but has, has Mayor London Breed come out and uh, said how she feels about these kinds of regulations on planes? She is apparently against the federal guidelines on planes. She should be against them, but maybe she should say that out loud. Well, she only says it out loud in defense of herself, not in defense of anybody else. Now, of course, as always with these uh, with these COVID hypocrites, the things they're saying in defense of their behavior, if you're to consider that in a vacuum, it makes sense. I don't have a problem 
I'm not the one with a problem of someone who has a problem with someone going to a nightclub and having a drink with their friends and hanging out without a mask on. All of that makes perfect sense. The problem, of course, is that those excuses would not fly for anybody else in San Francisco. No one else is allowed to do that. No business is allowed to say in San Francisco, I'm not going to abide by the mandates because I just want my customers to have a good time. They should be allowed to say that, but they can't. Only Mayor London Breed can say that. Because all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others, to quote Animal Farm. Um, Animal Farm, which, by the way, I, I think if we're, if we're looking for an Orwell comparison and everyone goes to 1984 and there's a lot, there's you know certainly a lot that's analogous there, many comparisons, but I think Animal Farm more and more is the better comparison. Um, but she doesn't apologize. And that's the other thing we always see with Democrats in general. Never apologize. Just double down. Maybe a lesson there for the rest of us. More hypocrisy um, on COVID. The Emmys were last night, and we're just going through all of the you know awards ceremonies and galas and the VMAs last week. No one, no one cares about any of this. Nobody watches any of it anymore. But they're still gonna, you know, they're still gonna throw these really even they don't have the ratings anymore to justify it, but they're still gonna throw these parties for themselves. Um, because it makes them feel important, and that's what it's really all about. But they were indoors, maskless, at the Emmys. And then Seth Rogen gets up there and he calls them out for this. He's getting a lot of credit for this on online. You know, the, the social media is impressed with Seth Rogen for his courage and standing up there and calling out his fellow celebrities for their COVID hypocrisy. But I'm not quite, I'm not quite as impressed as everybody else seems to be. Let's listen to Seth Rogen first. Um, anyway, good to be here at the Emmy Awards. Let me start by saying there is way too many of us in this little room. What are we doing? They said this was outdoors. It's not. They lied to us. We're in a hermetically sealed tent right now. I would not have come to this. Why is there a roof? It's more important that we have three chandeliers than that we make sure we don't kill Eugene Levy tonight. Yeah, they're, they're, that's perfect because they're laughing about their hypocrisy. There's no courage in that for Seth Rogen. He's, he's, he's saying, yeah, we're hypocrites. Isn't that hilarious? And everyone's laughing hysterically at it. He says, I wouldn't have come to this if I had known. Really, when you're like walking down the red carpet and you've got your fancy orange suit on, you, you didn't notice the building. You, you could walk any, you could leave any time. Uh, do they have you at gunpoint on stage? I wouldn't be here right now if I knew it was going to be like this. And then he stays there for another four and a half hours. Yeah, that's what we have to understand. They think that their hypocrisy is funny. It's just a joke. This is, there's nothing remarkable about that except that they're doing it on TV with the cameras rolling, laughing about their own, own hypocrisy. But they don't care. Here's what we have to understand about the, the elites. They, they, they just don't care if you're upset about it. Mayor London Breed 
Uh, I hate to even call her an elite as the mayor of that garbage crap hole San Francisco. But, you know, in a sense of being uh, in charge of the city, she is. So they don't care if you're upset about it. They don't care if I'm upset about it. Because to them, we are subhuman. We don't, our, our opinions don't matter at all. And all of these rules are for us because we can't be trusted. See, Mayor Breed, she, she can make judgment calls. And she knows that she's vaccinated. And she knows that this is a reasonable thing to do. And it's not a great risk and everything else. And she just wants to have a go, go and have a good time. That's discernment. That's a judgment call. She can do that. She can make that judgment call. She trusts herself. She trusts her friends to do that. But she doesn't trust you because you're, you're nothing but a, a peon. You're barely human to her. That's the way they view it. Um, speaking of, uh, here's actual subhuman behavior. This is a viral video that will really make your blood boil. It, 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 we, we played the video last week of the kid on the plane being forced to wear a mask and you might have thought it can't get any worse than that, but it can. Uh, here's a very young child at a daycare center. And when I say very young, I mean, this kid looks to be under two, maybe 18 months, 18 to 20 months, or somewhere in that, that range. And he is screaming while the harpies at the daycare center try to put the muzzle on him. Let's watch some of this video. <laughs> put yeah. the mask on. Yeah. No, you gotta, put, you gotta wear it on the honey. No, you gotta keep it on. <laughs> Put your mask on. There you go. Keep it right there. Yay, Mason! Yay! You feel it, Mason? Look, we're gonna keep it right here. That's just ungodly rage. It fills me with watching that. As a parent, I don't even like the... It gives me heart palpitations just to see a kid that age with anything around his neck. Okay? And if you have any experience with young kids, you know that that's, that's not paranoia. I mean, if it's paranoia, it's less paranoid to be worried about that than it is to be worried about COVID for a kid that age. I would be more worried about him having that thing around his neck and it getting tangled and somehow he ends up choking himself. Um, well, I mean, one of the with with ki- with kids that age, one of the most dangerous things in your home is the like the the cord on your blinds. Kids get their necks wrapped around that and uh, essentially hang themselves. These, these kind of things, these kinds of things happen. So that alone is a reason why I wouldn't put that mask on a kid. And there are about a hundred other reasons on top of it. Now, a child, as I said, I, I think under two years old, we don't know the exact age. He doesn't have full words yet, you can tell. Which means he can't, he can't also, he also can't understand everything that's being told to him. So there's no way to communicate to a child that age why he needs to wear a mask. I mean, really, you can't communicate it to any child because there is no good reason for it. 
But whatever your bad reasons are, he's not going to understand that. Which means that kids that age, they're either not going to wear the mask. That's a, that, that is a normal, healthy child reaction to putting something on their face like that. Have you, have you ever tried putting like a hat on a kid? Forget about something on their face. Try putting a, some, a hat on their head. Or it's raining out and, you know, they've got their uh, little rain jacket on. You try to put the hood up so they don't get their, their hair wet. How long does that thing stay on there? Ten seconds? Now, how in the world would you keep something on their face if you can't even keep something on their head? And the answer is, in, in most cases, with healthy kids, and by that I mean psychologically healthy kids, you're not going to be able to do it. They just will not go along with it. They're not capable of going along with something like that. And yet you hear from parents who say, in, in, by way of defending masking kids, they say, oh, my kid, I have a two-year-old, and he wears the mask without a problem whenever we go out. I send him to daycare. I send him to preschool. We go to Target, and he wears the mask the whole time. Now, I think a lot of these parents are probably lying. But not all of them. Now, I have seen kids that look as, as young as that or younger walking around you know, places with, uh, with masks on their face and not really fidgeting much with it. And so you just have to think. What did those parents and the adults in that child's life, what did they have to do to that child to make him cooperate with this? It, it, it is, it's bone-chilling to think about the psychological abuse, the amount of fear that they would have to instill in a child to get a child that age to cooperate with something like that. You would have to absolutely scare them senseless, repeatedly. You would have to drill this fear into their little heads. And it would have to be a, a, a terror campaign that you're waging against your child um, consistently until it really sinks in. That's the only way a kid that age will go along with it, is if they are terrified that if they don't take the mask off, they'll die. And you got to really try to get that message into their heads. And then once you've done that, I mean, there's no psycholo- there's no recovering from that psychologically. You have really and truly emotionally and psychologically scarred your kid. Permanently. I mean, you've caused developmental, mental developmental, uh, psychological developmental issues that aren't going to magically go away. Of all the things we worry about, we hear, we hear about people being emotionally traumatized and psychologically traumatized. And we hear about our kids are going to be traumatized if they, you know, if they get a failing grade on a report card. And so we got to get rid of the grading system and all this kind of stuff. All of the worrying we do over trauma and the way that the word trauma is so abused and misapplied. And yet here is an actual example of it. That is real trauma that you are inflicting on a child. And of course, we know that the exact same people, there, there's a, there is an almost 100% overlap between the people who 
think that a, you know, a failing grade will traumatize a child, so we got to get rid of the grading system. And the people who think that it's not traumatizing at all to force a very young child to wear a face mask and to tell him that if he takes it off, he might die. All right, finally, uh, Doug Gottlieb is the former FDA commissioner, and he has some information on the origins of the six feet social distancing guideline. Uh, or rather, his information is that there's no information on the origins because nobody knows the origins, but let's listen to him. And you're right, the six feet was arbitrary. The six feet was arbitrary in and of itself. But if the administration had focused in on that, they might have been able to affect a policy that would have actually achieved their outcome. But mm-hmm. that policy-making process didn't exist. And the six feet is a perfect example of sort of the lack of um, rigor around how CDC made recommendations. Nobody knows where it came from. Most people assume that the six feet of distance, the recommendation for keeping six feet apart, comes out of some old studies related to flu, where droplets don't travel more than six feet. We now know COVID spreads through aerosols. We've known that for a while. So how operative is that? The initial recommendation that the CDC brought to the White House, and I talk about this, was 10 feet. And a, a political appointee in the White House said, we can't recommend 10 feet. Nobody can measure 10 feet. It's inoperable. Society will shut down. So the compromise was around six feet. That's that's bureaucracy for you. I can think of no, if you want to understand what bureaucracy is, if you want to understand the problem with uh, bureaucracy and being governed by a bureaucratic state, watch that video. That's it right there in less than 60 seconds. Here's a, this is a policy that was put in place and that we have been forced to reorient our lives around this policy. Businesses have been shut down across the country permanently because of this policy of social distancing. Not all businesses could enforce it or could operate around it. And so here's a policy that has had enormous impact on everybody's life. Devastating impact put in place by the government and nobody knows who came up with it or why. That's how bureaucracies work. They're designed this way. They are designed to, bureaucracies are groups of people, but the idea is that the groups of people can do things, but no no individual in that group will be responsible for those things having been done, which means that nobody is ever held accountable because there's nobody to hold account, to hold to account. There's not like one guy you can look to and say, well, he's the one who, who told us about this. Every once in a while, if they really, if they're really feeling the heat, they'll offer up some kind of some poor sap, some some sacrificial lamb, and they'll say, "Oh yeah, it was all this guy's fault. We didn't know we didn't know this guy's name until you know until thirty minutes ago." But yeah, it's it's his fault. So every once in a while, they'll do that. But in terms of holding the real responsible parties to account, never happens because. As far as the bureaucracy is concerned, the bureaucracy just sort of acts. It just does things. And it never filters down to one individual person. Of course, you would think that if that's the case, at least the people running the bureaucracies, Fauci, for example, well, maybe we could hold them accountable. But we can't hold them accountable either because they can always point down the the, the food chain. And once you get down the food chain, the accountability just sort of evaporates into thin air. 
So six feet of social distancing, this is based on no science, completely arbitrary. There's no reason to have been following it. And yet, even now, you're anti-science if you question it. I could probably go on Twitter right now and say social distance, six feet of social distancing is arbitrary and nonsensical and not rooted in science. And, uh, you know, I would be suspended from the platform for misinformation. All right, let's move now to reading the YouTube comments. Who's rocking polka dot and flannel shirts without shame? Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. Oh, that was sudden. Can we find a happy meaning? It's like, that's too short. Before it was too long. I just don't know what I want, I guess. Can't make up my mind. All right. Uh, let's see. Prill says, talk, he's, he's talking about the national divorce idea that we discussed on Friday. He says, unlike most real divorces, uh, this one would be the kid's fault entirely. Well, I have to disagree with you there. So you're saying if, we, if the country has to break up, the American experiment is no longer working, the, the, the union is, is dissolving. You're saying all that blame goes, what, to the younger generations, millennials and Gen Z? Come on. What, what generation has been in control for the last 30 years? We, we've been living under boomer control for decades now. How has that worked? And you want to absolve the generation that created this country that we're currently living in? We're going to absolve them of all blame. Almost every politician on a national level who has helped to drive this country into the ground over the last 30 years, they haven't been millennials. Certainly not Gen Z. Now, I'm not... As a millennial, am I, am I saying that we absolve our generation of blame? Of course not. I'm no uh, apologist for millennials, that's for sure. But uh, this thing we do where we want to, you know, we want to always point to the younger generations. It doesn't work that way. It's like you're, you're handing off a vehicle and the vehicle's already on fire and you're giving it to the next generation and they take it around the block a couple spins and they bring it back. And the fire is a, like, there's a little bit more smoke billowing out of the, the engine. And you go, what'd you do with my car? What happened to my car? The, the car was, was, the car might be in, in a little bit worse shape now, but it was totaled before they, they even got in it. So slow your roll there a little bit. All right, Bernard says, Matt's, Matt Walsh's daughter's method of persuasion sounds an awful lot like a theocratic dictator. She's a chip off the old block. She is, and I couldn't be prouder. Daniel says, I love Matt's stories about his kids. Reminds me that my kids aren't uniquely insane. Uh, yeah, I mean, kids are all weird, man. They're, they're very weird. You, you realize that. One of the main things you realize early on as a parent, kids are strange. And you always think, I don't remember being this strange when I was a kid, but I guess I was. I was thinking about this yesterday uh, when I was reading to my youngest son, four years old, uh, before nap time. He still has a nap time, and we're, we're clinging on to his nap time uh, as much as we possibly can. But I was reading Hansel and Gretel to my uh, youngest son. He's, he's going through a phase right now where he really loves that story, the Hansel and Gretel story. He's, like, obsessed with it. He wants, to, he wants it to be read to him every day, multiple times a day sometimes. Um, 
and I, you know, I'm sitting down and I'm reading this story to him thinking that this story is horrifying. It's been a while since I've read it. You know, it's like Hansel and Gretel. They're these neglected kids. The, the stepmother, they're at home with their dad and the stepmother, the stepmother's an evil stepmother. And she convinces the dad to abandon the kids. He doesn't want to, but he, but he's this henpecked husband. She says, oh, we should abandon the kids in the middle of the forest because we don't have enough food to split with them. And so he says, ah, I don't want to do it, but I will. And he abandons the kid. And then they're wandering in the forest and they end up at this, this uh, house that's made of uh, gingerbread. And they go in and there's this old lady who looks really kind, but then she tries to eat them. And then they escape. And that's the end of the story. And I'm reading it and I'm thinking, not, not that I'm blaming my kid for the fact that this story is so weird, but what do you like about this story? You weirdo. I didn't say that, but I thought it. Um, Stan says, Matt, I tend to find that you're a little too apathetic on animal rights. Now, by no means am I some Greta Thunberg simp. I'm not vegan, etc. but I view it like the climate. I think we should be more respectful to it on principle. God made them. He created them like he created us. Yes, he gave us intelligence. He gave us a real soul, a real humanity. He didn't give the rest of the animals those things, but that doesn't mean we should just treat them as useless or as worthless. That's still a living creature, a work of God. I think we should be a little bit more respectful towards animals and the climate for those reasons. Uh, I don't disagree with that. I mean, the idea of being respectful to the climate to me is a little bit weird. Respect the weather. I'm not sure. But I I get what you're saying in general. Nature, you know, respect nature. Um, You don't want to go, you know, deforesting for no reason. Um, and uh, you don't want to pollute and those sorts of things. You want to respect animals. I don't believe in killing animals for no reason. If you're going to kill an animal to eat the animal, that's that's fine. So I don't I don't disagree with you. It's just that I don't really connect with animal rights issues on an emotional level, and I and I admit that. Um, Joel Ellie says, while I don't agree with Lil Nas X's politics at all, I do agree that he has no responsibility to cater to children. That's like forcing someone like Dave Chappelle to have child-friendly comedy just because he starred in a kid's movie before. It's our responsibility as parents to shield our kids away from material that's not suitable for them. I do agree that it's, no one is saying that it's primarily Lil Nas X's responsibility to shield your children over your own responsibility. Of course, it's primarily your own as the parent. But this is a a unique situation because this is a guy who came onto the scene as essentially a child's artist, and he intentionally cultivated that reputation. And then it wasn't a gradual change over years where he started focusing on more adult-oriented material, quote-unquote. This was a sudden shift where we went from performing at elementary schools to twerking on Satan's lap. And uh, yes, I, I do think that he has some responsibility to the audience of children that he has cultivated. Not that he cares in the slightest. And finally, Peter says, Matt, how will you celebrate episode 800? I think you should raise the price of your SBG merch to $200 and command your sweet babies to buy it. Um, that's not a bad idea. And that's right. This is the 800th episode, which is a huge milestone. We've done 800 of these damn things. And in all seriousness, you know, I do want to take a rare moment to be totally sincere and say that it's, it's been such a rewarding journey for these past 800 shows. Um, and I believe that we're truly building something special and, uh, we couldn't do it without any of you. And, and most especially it brings my heart, great joy to know that together we're forming this community of like-minded people 
who can all come together in the belief that all pandas must die. Because um, that, I think, is the most important thing we've established over these last 800 episodes. Well, it may not always feel like it when you're online because you might feel secure. You're just sitting there on your phone or on your laptop or whatever. But the fact is, every time you go online, you are putting your information at risk. And there are a lot of bad actors out there who are going to be ready to take advantage of that. Payment apps like Venmo, Cash App, and others make payments easy. But you may want to adjust your privacy settings to prevent them from sharing your personal information. A recent report found that payment apps share user data with third parties such as banks, fraud monitoring services, and some even share it with marketing firms. It's important to understand how cybercrime and identity theft are affecting our lives every day, and they are affecting our lives every day. Every day we put our information at risk on the internet. In an instant, a cybercriminal could harm what's yours, your finances, your credit, your reputation. I mean, your whole life could be ruined by this stuff. That's why it's so good that there is LifeLock. LifeLock helps detect a wide range of identity threats, especially the threats that you might not know about if you're just you know, monitoring your own credit or looking at your bank account and all that kind of stuff. You also have access to a dedicated restoration specialist if you do become a victim. So nobody can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses, but you can keep what's yours with LifeLock by Norton. Join now and save up to 25% off your first year at LifeLock.com Walsh. That's LifeLock.com Walsh for 25% off. And you know, the Biden administration has declared war on all businesses with over 100 employees in the form of mandatory vaccinations or mandatory weekly testing. And the Daily Wire is not standing for it. Why? Well, because the Daily Wire has over 100 employees and they refuse to subject us to this violation of our personal medical freedom. Companies like ours that refuse to comply could face up to $14,000 for each violation, which could get pretty crippling pretty fast. And I can't think of a better reason to let the fines pile up than for opposing medical tyranny and the erasure of freedom. So we need your help in this fight. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code do not comply at checkout for 25% off. Americans have been far too willing to cede their freedoms to authoritarian bureaucrats in the name of public health for far too long. Enough is enough. So stand with us. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe and use code do not comply. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. The Biden administration has, in less than a year, claimed unprecedented power for itself. It would probably not be an exaggeration to say that Biden is the most powerful president in American history. He's also about as cognizant as a cantaloupe at this point. Perhaps it would be more accurate to say that he's the most powerful cantaloupe in American history. Or most accurately of all, his administration, his handlers, the people running the show, are the ones with the power. And they're not satisfied. Because power-mad tyrants are never satisfied. They want more power, more authority, more control over your life. Which is why President Cantaloupe and his administration are now pushing Congress to grant the IRS access to your bank account. And I mean almost everyone's bank accounts. Here's the Wall Street Journal reporting. Treasury, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen and IRS Commissioner Charles Reddig pressed lawmakers Wednesday to give the Internal Revenue Service more information about taxpayers' bank accounts as the Biden administration tries to salvage its struggling tax compliance proposal. In letters to lawmakers, the administration officials again asked Congress to require banks to report annual inflows and outflows from bank accounts with at least $600 or at least $600 worth of transactions, a proposal aimed at letting the IRS target its audits more effectively. It would generate about $460 billion over the course uh, of a decade to cover the cost of Democrats' planned expansion of the um, social safety net and climate change policies, according to the administration. So, if you're one of those wealthy fat cats with more than $600 in your account, then the IRS wants to know about all of your inflows and outflows. 
Okay, no big deal there, really. Nothing major. They just want to know your entire transaction history. They want to know about every dime you receive and spend. That's all. Now, um, there are some who have raised objections to this plan, if you can imagine. They seem to care about silly things like privacy and fundamental human liberty and other superfluous concerns. The IRS has a response to all of that. From the Wall Street Journal, again, it says, quote, Treasury officials have been trying to respond to those concerns, pointing to research showing that tax compliance is higher when, when, when people know that the IRS has independent sources of information about their finances, such as W-2 wage reporting. A reporting regime that is broad-based will better assist the IRS in targeting enforcement priorities on the high end who accrue income in opaque ways, Ms. Yellen wrote Wednesday in one of the several letters from the Treasury officials to Ways and Means Committee Chairman Richard Neal. Quote, any suggestion that instead this reporting regime will be used to target enforcement efforts or of ordinary Americans is wholly misguided. Financial institutions currently must report interest, dividend, and investment income to the IRS. The IRS can also get bank account information during audits. Uh, Ms. Yellen contended that compliant taxpayers would actually benefit because they would have a lower risk of a burdensome audit. She wrote that compliance costs wouldn't be high because the IRS and banks would just expand a current reporting structure for interest income. Ah, well, there you go. They need access to all of your accounts and your entire transaction history because it will help you be more obedient. And the good news is that if you are obedient, then you have nothing to worry about. In fact, if the IRS is allowed to have access to your accounts, then maybe they won't need to audit you. If they don't have access, then, you know, they're going to have to audit you. Of course, the reason they won't audit you if they have access to your accounts is because they're already auditing you. What is being proposed here is a permanent audit of nearly every tax-paying American forever. Over a decade, we're told that this will generate $460 billion in additional revenue because they'll be catching all of those dastardly cheaters and everything. Uh, $460 billion in, dec in a decade is what they're talking about, which the, which the government will then spend in one month. So that's the deal. You forfeit all of your financial privacy, all of it, and go under a permanent IRS audit, and in exchange, the government over the course of 10 years will raise enough additional money to run its operations for four weeks. Who could possibly object? Well, I'll tell you who is not objecting. Uh, the conservatives over at the Bulwark. Conservatives, quote-unquote. The Bulwark, uh, founded by never-Trump conservatives and so named because it's supposed to be a bulwark, a last defense, heroically preserving conservatism, published a piece on Friday by conservative, quote-unquote, Jim Swift, defending this IRS proposal and accusing all who oppose it of being in league with tax evaders. Swift writes, quote, What the Democrats want to do is give the IRS more knowledge about where and how money flows. As the IRS commissioner wrote last month, more and better data will provide the IRS with a lens into otherwise opaque sources of income with historically lower levels of reporting accuracy. In opposing this measure, Republicans claim they're standing up for privacy and for people who don't yet have bank accounts, but hypothetically might someday. But they are really covering for tax cheats. Bottom line, will giving the IRS the ability to catch tax cheats with accounts with balances over $600 make a dent in the tax gap? Yes. Will it impinge on your freedom? Not significantly, no. Oh, okay. So you see there. The Democrats simply want complete and permanent access to your financial information because it will help close the tax gap. Will it take away your freedom? Uh, not significantly, no. Then again, you know, Biden could put us all in chains and lock us in the White House dungeon 
and Jim Swift would still be there, chained to the wall with a rat nibbling at his toes and scolding the rest of us for complaining about it. This is for your own good. Listen to me. I'm the real conservative here. Now, obviously, if concepts like financial freedom and privacy mean anything, I mean, if they have any value, any meaning, then we can't submit to a plan like this. You could only support this plan if you fundamentally oppose the idea that we, the citizens, should be able to keep anything private from our government overlords at all. What about the tax gap? What about catching tax cheaters? Well, the IRS will have to use the already considerable tools at its, disposable, at, at its disposal to do that. Though I have to confess personally, you know, I don't really care if people are cheating. I'll tell you that right now. The idea that tax cheaters are measurably harming the country by depriving the government of their income is absurd when you consider the fact that the government already collects $3.5 trillion a year in taxes. If it can't figure out how to keep itself operational with $3.5 trillion a year, and it can't because it spends almost double what it takes in, then the problem cannot be solved by giving it more. You know, this is a fact of life that holds true at every level. If you're not responsible with a little bit of money, you're not going to suddenly be responsible when you have more money. This is one of the reasons why people who win the lottery, the lottery almost always ruins their life. Because if you're playing the lottery, it probably means that you're not responsible with your money. And if you're not responsible with a little bit of money you have, and now you have $50 million or $500 million, it's going to ruin your life. And for the government, if you aren't responsible with $3.5 trillion, then you're not going to be responsible with an additional half trillion over a decade. It's a very sad thing that these slobbering, wasteful drunks can bilk nearly $4 trillion in taxes every year and still cry that it's not enough. And even so-called conservatives will take the sob story seriously. Oh no, they can't make do on $3.5 trillion. We have to give up all of our financial independence and privacy forever to solve this problem, is what they tell us. But none of this is too, is too surprising. Um, it, it was always inevitable that it would get to this point once the government claimed the authority to tax us simply for earning an income. And then even granted itself the power to take its portion of our income from our checks automatically without us even having to send the money in. So the path has been paved for quite some time. And now some conservatives, especially those over at the bulwark, are happy to walk down it. And for that reason, they are the ones who are canceled today. And we'll leave it there. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts, we're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Wall Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Today on The Ben Shapiro Show, the Biden administration struggles with a massive wave of Haitian migrants at the southern border, AOC's dressmaker hasn't paid her fair share of taxes, and the Pentagon admits it droned innocence on the way out of Afghanistan. That's today on The Ben Shapiro Show. Give it a listen. Listen.